Hello, and welcome to Free America. I'm your host, Nick Yaya, and this is the Free America Podcast. Today is Sunday, September 13th, 2020, and this is podcast number eight, which means we are only 92 episodes away from syndication. And for those of you who don't know, in the world of television, when a show goes into syndication, it can mean big money for everybody involved. But for now, we rely upon you, our listeners, to support this podcast. So if you like what we bring you each week, please consider making a contribution to our show by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. You can now also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and numerous other podcast outlets. I also encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Free America Podcast and on Twitter at Free America. And now you can also watch our show live by visiting our brand new website at freeamericapodcast.com where you'll find our live stream every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific as well as previous shows, news articles, and other interesting and important videos. So getting right down to business, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing socialism. What is socialism? Is it the opposite of capitalism? Is it dangerous for our country? These are some of the questions we're going to answer on today's show. As it stands currently and traditionally, the United States is a capitalist country. Capitalism is a system which rewards individual initiative and favors market mechanisms over government intervention. In a capitalist system, the means of production is owned by private individuals. Companies are motivated by profit, and the government enforces laws and regulations to make sure there is a level playing field for those privately run companies. Socialism, on the other hand, is a system by which the means of production, such as money and other forms of capital, are owned by the state or public. Under a socialist system, everyone works for wealth that is in turn distributed to everyone. In the end, it is the government that decides how wealth is distributed among the people. Essentially, the government provides for the people. In the United States today, there are socialist systems already in place. Social security, the public education system, public libraries, Medicare, and the Affordable Care Act, AKA Obamacare, are some of the programs that most people are familiar with. So, how have we fared under these systems? Well, in the case of Social Security, some would say not so well. Currently, the Social Security Trust Fund reserves are projected to become exhausted by 2035. Yikes. According to Reason.com, another issue facing the Social Security program is, quote, when Social Security was launched in 1935, the average life expectancy for Americans was 61. This means the average person died four years before qualifying for benefits. It was originally imagined as a safety net for the truly needy, not a conveyor belt to transfer wealth from younger, from the younger working population to the older, relatively wealthier retired population. As a result, the worker to beneficiary ratio has shifted dramatically. Last year, there were 64 million Americans getting benefits from Social Security, while 178 million people paid into the system via payroll taxes, according to the trustees report. That's less than three workers for every beneficiary, a near historic low, end quote. Hmm. 
Perhaps this is why the governors in our two most populous states ordered COVID positive patients into nursing homes. Maybe, but that's a discussion for another time. Now, some people accuse Congress of borrowing money from the Social Security Trust Fund with a promise to pay it back, which is partially true. They have taken the money and in exchange issued bonds for it. Now, this, in my opinion, is a dangerous practice. If the government defaults on these bonds or the bond market collapses, so does Social Security. But according to The Motley Fool, another uh, well-known website and financial advisor, uh, quote, if you... If you want to blame Congress for something, blame both parties for not finding a common ground solution to the program's imminent $13.2 trillion cash shortfall. Each party brings a solution to the table that would work. Unfortunately, since Democrats and Republicans each have a workable fix, neither feels incentivized to work with their opposition to find a middle ground. Ultimately, Congress hasn't stolen a red cent from Social Security, but... It is threatening to make life more expensive for workers because the longer law longer lawmakers wait to fix Social Security, the more expensive it will be for working Americans. End quote. Now, my point is this. When left up to the government, the management of business is prone to disaster. If you don't believe me, just take a trip to your local DMV. Now, our guest today has a different point of view. He's a writer, musician, and organizer for Socialist Alternative, which is an international organization dedicated to the socialist transformation of society. Now, we've known each other for several years, and in the interest of full disclosure, I must tell you that I have hired him as one of the writers for a television show that I've been developing called Hell Incorporated. And one of the reasons I brought him on board, in addition to his skill as a writer, is that he offers a viewpoint different from mine and is extremely well-read and highly intelligent. And my only hope today is that he won't run circles around me. So please join me in welcoming CC. Hey, CC. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, sir? Hanging in there day by day. Yeah, well, glad to glad to have you on the show, man. Um, I know we've um, in the past had had some conversations on this subject and you've always, you know, been very, very informative, really, and really kind of opened my eyes a lot to um, what socialism about is about and what it has to offer. And um, I'm hoping that you can share that with our with our listeners today. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a topic that is. Um, you hear in society, you hear it in, the, in, in your workplaces, you hear it in your communities. Um, people are um, more open to socialist ideas um, than they have been in generations. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see that expressed um, in several ways. Uh, one is in the Sanders phenomenon two straight presidential runs uh, from uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, um, who uh, was self-described democratic socialist. Um, And you saw, especially um, millennials and Zoomers really attracted to his campaign. It wasn't because Bernie was a dynamic 
personality. It was because they were attracted to his program, his program of what he called political revolution, um, a struggle against the billionaire class. Now, this resonates very deeply um, with wide layers of the working class. And again, like I said, particularly the youth. And they were attracted to his program of Medicare for all, of canceling um, student debt. Um, and and, and, to, and it was because it, it spoke to their lived reality. Um, they, see, they see that society is as, uh, as deeply um, um, unequal, uh, more than it's been in, probably since the 1890s, the first Gilded Age. Um, as far as um, income inequality, um, you see um, uh, millennials and Zoomers that are riddled with with school debt, car debt, credit card debt. Um, they see uh, they don't see a a very bright uh, bright future um, uh, under our current uh, system, and that is a um, a mm -hmm. capitalist system. Yeah, um, and so it's on. So the, the the ideas of socialism are being talked about. They're being debated, um, and it's it's really the f for the first time in generations that it, the stigma attached um, to socialism has um, lessened and and continues to lessen um, more and more. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in fact, I, I followed Bernie's. Um, campaign pretty closely in 2016 as as well as this time around and it seems like he always gets the short end of the stick from the democratic party and it's a shame um you know i like a lot of what he has to say um although i don't agree with all of it but i i think that you know he's very passionate and speaks on behalf of people who who don't really have a voice in today's political system i think a lot of people would agree that our political system has been hijacked by the moneyed class whether those are corporations or, or just people with a lot of money who want to support either one side or the other, or actually who in, in some cases support both sides, which um, I know a lot of wealthy people do. I know Donald Trump for a long time supported both Republicans and Democrats. And when asked about it, he says, that's, I don't make the rules. That's just politics. And so that's indicative of, of a system that currently I don't think uh, works for the average person. Um, now, is socialism the answer to that? I don't know. You might think so. Uh, Bernie, Bernie thinks so. Now, tell me the difference between, if there is any, between um, social democrats and what your platform is—the socialist alternative. Tell us a little bit about your organization. Sure. So, um, socialist alternative um, is a, uh, a a national um, uh, revolutionary socialist organization. It's a Marxist organization. Um, it's also a part of an international organization called International Socialist Alternative. Uh, we're in um, nearly 40 countries uh, worldwide and, and growing. Um, and we're here in the U.S., uh, we have branches from, from, from coast to coast. Um, and really what we, what we, what we fight for um, is a, to begin with, we want to fight for every possible gain that we can win for our class, for the working class. Um, as we do this, so for instance, a uh, $15 uh, wage increase, our, our organization led a coalition that won the $15 wage increase in Seattle, the first major U.S. city 
uh, to win it. Mm -hmm. um, we want to win that not because we have any illusions that by winning $15 wage increase, all of our problems are going to be solved. Mm. But we win that because that is at the forefront of the mind of, of, of the consciousness of wide layers of the working class. And, you know, who's going to argue with, oh, hell yeah, we need a, you know, we need a, a wage increase. Absolutely. And right. it lifted uh, tens of thousands of uh, families in Seattle out of poverty when we won that. Um, and it continues to do so. But what we do is we know that that's not that's not where we stop. Right. That's a beginning. It's about how we win um, um, victories like 15 now and victories like the like the Amazon tax, which we just won also in Seattle. Uh, right. We win it from um, from a, a, a method of class struggle versus class collaboration. So where, whereas class collaboration would be kind of that that uh, that really sanitized phrase, we want to bring everyone to the table. You've heard that phrase. Yeah. Well, the table's owned by the capitalists. The politicians that they own in the Republican Democratic Party set the table, and then the workers get the crumbs. So that's what happens when you quote bring everyone to the table. Mm -hmm. When you take a class struggle approach, you want to build. Uh, working class power. You want to build uh, a coalition between uh, social movement organizations, through, through grassroots organizations, through uh, labor unions. Um, and you want to build your power as a class um, and, and expose, um, expose the capitalist class and the, and the politicians that are in their pockets mm. for the system that they've created and how unequal and destructive that system is you want to you want to light that up you want to expose that and you want to show the power of your class um and when we do that and we show that we have the numbers we have uh, a winning approach a fighting approach um you can put enough pressure um on for instance in seattle um quote, progressive Democrats that sit on the city council to kind of finally pass the type of legislation that working class people need. Um, and otherwise, you know, no matter what Democratic pundits tell you, they're not the party of the working class. They're mm -hmm. not in the they don't act in the interests of the working class. They squarely act in the interests of the ruling class, along with their counterparts in the Republican Party. And so when we uh, we got one of our um, members elected to the Seattle City Council. Her name is Shama Sawan. Mm. And so once Shama was elected to City Council, it was kind of like this, almost like a battery. Uh, you have Shama inside on the council and then this powerful grassroots working class movement outside. And so Shama um, can expose the uh, kind of the, milk toast Democrats that she sits on that council with and, and say, listen, this is what the working class of Seattle needs. They need this pay increase or we need to tax Amazon so we can build affordable housing and, and shift money towards COVID relief. And so these Democrats who can typically hide and hide behind platitudes um, and hide behind quote, we're not Trump. When you have a genuine Marxist in office, they can't get away with that. There's nowhere for them to hide. And when you build this pressure movement on the outside um, of unions, working uh, working class organizations, neighborhood groups, and our and our organization, Socialist Alternative, you can build enough power 
to get some things done and to win some real gains for working people. But mm -hmm. as we build that movement and as we fight for it, we also want to say, listen, this win can be taken back at any time. The capitalist class can regroup. Those Democrats on the city council can regroup. And two years later, they can shift a, more, uh, shift a few seats around and they can, they can renege on that law or they can pass a new law that circumvents the one you just you just passed, the gain you just won, right? And so you have to go beyond that. You have to build a, a, a socialist consciousness of, yeah, we won this one gain. We won this victory. But what we need is to is to keep winning. We keep winning victories, but we have to look at a more fundamental transformation of society, mm. a society wherein um, it, we move from a capitalist society to a socialist uh, society with a planned economy that's democratically worker run in the hands uh, of the state versus the chaos of the market uh, and the, the kind of the, the vicious profit motive. Um, that drives the capitalist engine. Okay. Well, you know that when you say it, when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're talking about these huge corporate interests, you know, these multinational corporations that pretty much write the legislation that our that our lawmakers pass. I've seen it. I've seen them do it. Um, and so these are not these these don't come from the people and through the people. But my question would be to you is what about the smaller businesses, the mom and pop businesses, these other entities that um, employ a large number of people in the United States. What about them? Where do they fall in this in this picture? Right, right. And for instance, um, there's there's a politically there's there's a pretty big divide between in classic Marxist terms, petty bourgeois and the big bourgeoisie, right? Small mm -hmm. business owners versus these these corporate giants and multinational giants, right? At that level, they have so much power over the economy, so much power over our political systems nationally and internationally. Um, that's, that's who we see as our, our, our class opponent, right? Um, the middle class is kind of, can be torn, can be torn on any number of issues. But uh, you can see even amidst the, the, the crisis uh, uh, that was triggered by, by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and this what's really looking like to be the beginning of a multi-year uh, global economic depression. Um, you have really weak uh, relief um, interventions or initiatives coming from the government, right? So you've got at one layer, you've got working class renters who are swimming in rent debt at this point you had up to at, at its peak in the early days of covid you know over 20 percent unemployment that's 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 workers and their families falling behind on rent still you have millions of workers behind on rent no relief from the government beyond uh, uh a small bit from uninsurance employment and then they had that 600 dollars top off which kept some layers just barely afloat, right? That's now been uh, that's now been dashed, um, and so that's just with renters. And then you have uh, homeowners, small business owners. The homeowners they've got mortgages with these big banks. A lot of them are the same big banks that consolidated during the two thousand eight two thousand nine crisis. Yeah, you had a massive government bailout 
Obama comes into office, this Democrat who still, by, by many li uh, liberal layers, praised um, um, for his eight years, he comes in and he he has an opportunity to, to um, fight for a program that's in the interest of the working class. And what does he do? He bails out the banks. He bails out the auto industry. Um, and that was a massive that was a massive betrayal of, of the working class. Mm. And you saw that in 2012 when uh, far less uh, working class people voted for him. And then in 2016, um, you see a really polarized society um, and you see Trump come to office running against one of the most miserable candidates the Democrats could find until this next character that they dug up, that they unearthed. <laughs> But you have, so you've got all these layers of society that are in very in deep, deep trouble. And there's no relief for those, for, for home mortgages. There's no relief for rent for small, for small businesses, right? And they owe that rent to big commercial interests, right? Who, who typically are part of some big conglomerate that traces its way all the way back to Wall Street. So when we're out there and we're, we're fighting for rent relief, we say, hey, tax, tax Amazon, tax the top, uh, uh, the top grossing companies in your city. Put a put a uh, put a tax on on these companies. The money will be used for direct COVID relief, so that all these working families aren't underwater. Get rid of that that rental debt. Uh, make sure that these uh, uh, the landlords can pay their pay their mortgages, so so that they're not underwater. They don't foreclose. And same for these small businesses who owe rent to these big commercial interests, right? So we don't, uh, you know, we don't. Uh, um, exclude or we don't we don't ignore these uh homeowners or small small business owners our sights are set on the giants the oligarchs that truly have such immense wealth and the power that comes with it that are driving an economy uh that leaves billions of us across the globe behind mm. um and that's who that's who we uh that's who we see as our, our class, uh, you know, our class enemy, our class opponent. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things I'd like to address with that statement. Um, just right off the back end, you know, a lot of people would argue that, that capitalism has been, been what's driven all the innovation that's gone on over the past century or so. When you're talking about, you know, technology or, or innovation in, in manufacturing and all these other things, whereas in in socialist or communist countries, there there wasn't the the um, incentive to to innovate and do these other things. Um, so that's one of the things that I, I think people might see as a problem uh, with with the with that kind of system. Second, um, when you're talking about taxing big businesses in in each city or even in, in the country, I think one of the big concerns is is that that's going to have a, a kind of a trickle down effect. So if if you're taking more money out of their operating budget. That means they have less money to pay employees, which means they may have to lay employees off or fire people. Um, and and then what is the long term viability of something like that? If, if a company says, well, you know, it's just too expensive to operate in the United States, we're going to move to China um, and or some other country. I don't know. We're going to move operations down to Mexico. Do you think that that could ha have a negative impact if 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 that is the case? Well, you'll hear that. You'll hear that. You'll hear threats from from corporations that if that if um, a movement is lifted to tax them, that that they will um, threaten to bail. Right? Capital flight. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's certain there are certain controls that 
uh, municipal and, and state and, and, and federal governments can, can place. And there's certain capital controls, so you can control some of that. Um, so that movement, um, but also it's many times they're, they, uh, they're empty threats. Um, Bezos is going to uproot. I was going to say. Uproot right. Amazon and, and remove his operation to some, some, some new city. He and his you know, executives have a pretty good life in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> Not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, and honestly, taxing the rich is just one step. That's one part of what we call a transitional program. It's, it's one, it's another win. It's another victory for the working class to, to pass a tax on the rich and to start using that for programs, uh, um, that we need. Um, mm -hmm. but again, our sites are set higher. If it, we, we would much rather not have play that game of, Oh, you know, we're just going to leave. Uh, eventually we, those companies should be state owned and worker run. They have built their empires. They've built their wealth on the exploitation of the working class on the exploitation of, of our labor. Um, and that is, that's fundamental, um, uh, um, to, to the capitalist system. It's inherently exploitative. Um, hmm. and really that it is the workers labor that has built this world. It has, um, it has created a, a, a world of abundance. Um, um, and it's really that should be in the um, in the hands uh, of the working class. It should be democratically worker run, mm -hmm. and it should be done um, so that you can plan the economy and make decisions um, of production and distribution based on meeting human need and the need of this environment, which is teetering on the edge of collapse due to this. Uh, rapacious and destructive capitalism that the only way to stop us from going off the climate cliff and for us to liberate literally billions of working class people from the boom the vicious boom and bust and the vicious inequality of capitalism is to is to win a socialist society is to, is to transform this society into a socialist society um, and therefore we won't have to worry about the jeff bezos of the world blackmailing us hmm. Now, well, you know, you brought up um, taking over these these. I don't know. I saw one of the the outlines of the of your of your program on on your website where it said taking over the top five hundred companies and making them state owned and publicly owned. Uh, what about the shareholders of those companies? What happens to them? Uh, those shareholders are they're doing all right, Nick. Okay. They'll be, so, they'll be doing okay. They'll be well, doing. Uh, I mean, I I own shares they, uh, in a company. What what happens to me? I mean, I I own a few yeah. shares of. Uh, it means you won't. It means you won't be amassing wealth off of off of other uh, other people's labor any longer. The the tap will be turned off. I see. So the entire stock market would pretty much cease to exist. Yeah, we wouldn't need that. We wouldn't need that. Uh, the chaos of the market any longer. So all we that be, we all won't be the, susceptible to market forces any longer. Right, but all the wealth that's that's held by just regular every uh, average people. Not we're not talking about these guys on yachts, you know, down in in South Beach. I'm talking about regular folks that have invested 
a, a good portion of their savings into stocks, into the into the mutual funds, into mm-hmm. you know individual securities for companies that they like to support. So you're yeah. just saying, sorry guys, you you don't get any of the money you invested back. It's just going to the state now. We we will not be expropriating working class people that have a few bucks in the market. So, we'll but be, how do you where do you we'll how be, do you how do you draw the line? How do you how do you know who's who? We'll, uh, we'll be, I mean, we'll be expropriating um, the oligarchs and okay. the, the mega corporations. Um, the, when we capture that, when, when we expropriate all that wealth and we start using it uh, to meet really dire needs, uh, again, uh, to meet human needs, um, health, housing, food, um, and, then, and then to meet the dire needs of this climate uh, crisis that we find ourselves uh, in it's uh, w- w- working class people are going to uh, um, welcome such a such a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're not going to be uh, we're not going to be expropriating this small layer of working class people that have small amounts of money in the market. Mm-hmm. So they they would somehow like remain shareholders as I don't know the the, the public at large or. Is that has that I mean has that been, you know, have you itemized that out? Is it something that that perhaps it still needs work? We we, I mean, we can sort that out. We okay. can sort that out again. It won't be workers that are expropriated. Cool. Yeah. Uh, um. Now, uh, there's another thing that that you brought up about about for people who are disabled, elderly. Um, people who are unemployed. I saw that there was something calling for $600 a week for, for people uh, who are in those positions. Now, I think we just kind of saw a test run of that during this COVID crisis where for, I don't know, a couple months, uh, people were, who were unemployed were getting an additional 600 weeks from the, from the federal government. And all these mom and pop businesses were shut down. Um, now, if that were to continue on, um, a lot of these businesses, when given the green light to open, found that they that employees were making more on unemployment than they were being employed. So, what do you what do you think is going to happen um, in a case like that, where people are just making more money by staying unemployed? Or I know people on disability who aren't even disabled. They got dis- disability for one reason or another. They're fully functioning and fully capable. So what happens if the majority of people decide, I don't want to work? Are, are, the minor- are the minority working class expected to carry that load? How would, how would something like that work? Well, I mean, I think you saw, I mean, first of all, if people are, are making, if, if people are making more uh, during this, public health crisis um, and, and economic crisis uh, based on, on this um, um, stimulus payment, then that says, that says a lot about what a terrible state the economy has been in for the last 40 years under neoliberalism. That tells me that the, uh, the buying power of the dollar um, um, has um, has gone down since the, you know, since the, the uh, 70s. There has been uh, stagnant since the 70s. Wages mm. stagnant. Um, yes. 
Yes, that tells have. me much more about um, 40 years of neoliberalism and how disastrous and how um, um, criminal such a system has been um, for, for the working masses. If you have, if you have people uh, that were making more uh, under the, under, under the stimulus situation. Um, so, yeah, I think it, if it, it, it's, uh, it tells us that the, the, the wealth is there to meet our needs. And what I think what it's done for more people is bring up questions of why, why are these banks bailed out? Why are these businesses, these massive businesses, conglomerates being bailed out? The money's there. The wealth is there. The capital is there. Mm -hmm. um, why is it such a small layer of society has a a, uh, a a monopoly over over all that wealth and yeah. such such ironclad uh, control over the economy and and the political system that serves that class. Um, I think those are the questions that I'm hearing talking to coworkers, sure. uh, talking to people uh, when we're out in the communities, um, talking to people about these ideas and about socialism. Um, yeah, it's much more about what, uh, um, how can we build, how can we build a society um, where we don't find ourselves um in the boom and bust that the, the, the madness of 2008, 2009, the very shallow recovery uh, that, that occurred, which was a recovery for a section of, of the ruling class. The, the folks that uh, won out during when the big fish were eating the little fish on wall street. Um, they want a society that's not going to be so fragile that a, a virus brings it to its knees. Um, you could see that in a if there was a a, a international um, um, federation of, of of socialist of socialist states of uh, socialist countries um, that was you know where where the economy is is state owned democratically worker run and is planned the handling of this pandemic would have been night and day you would have had international cooperation when the virus broke you would have had uh you would have had cooperation between the countries to to um isolate this virus there would have been communication back and forth because it's not there would be no competition between uh, competing uh ruling classes between competing capitalist classes you're not going to hush up a virus because you don't want it to affect your economy like xi jinping did Right. And then when it got beyond his borders, every other every other uh, uh, administration and regime across the globe hushed up the virus as long as they could because they didn't want to disturb their market. And so you put billions of people at risk to this deadly virus because your first thought is we don't want to disrupt the markets and we want to keep people at work as long as we can because we want to be profitable as long as we can. Mm -hmm. That's a sick system. That is a that is a uh, um, disastrous system uh, for working people, and under socialism, it wouldn't be this this cheap competition and this this um, um, insane 
insane competition. And you're going to see it with the, with the rollout of, of a vaccine as well. It's not international cooperation. It's who's going to get the patent and the rest of us be damned. Um, and then there's going to be all kinds of misinformation. If, if China comes up with a vaccine, if Russia comes up with a vaccine, these, these quote enemies who are really just capitalist rivals, mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see all this misinformation and disinformation and distortions. Meanwhile, the rest of us are living in lockdown, unemployed, underemployed, underwater with our debt payments or our mortgage payments. And it's just it's this whole process, this whole this whole uh, pandemic has exposed uh, capitalism uh, to, to millions, millions and millions of people. So you, you, uh, you made me think of something here now with we're talking about home ownership and and owner ownership of private property. Now, from my understanding, in a, in, a, in, a, in a strictly socialist system, private property is is not owned by the individual anymore. It's owned by the state. In the strictest sense. Right. Yeah. You would you would abolish private property. Right. So you would not have. Yeah. You wouldn't have private landlords um, charging you astronomical rents and and leaving you severely rent burdened like um like so many i mean you and i are here in los angeles Mm. a housing situation in los angeles is a complete nightmare um for millions of angelinos uh many of which can't even afford to live in la any longer and it's not much better in the suburbs Mm. um and it's yeah it's uh that's that's what I'm hearing people talk about. That's what I'm hearing people say that we have to solve, that we have to we have to fix. And when we passed um, the Amazon tax in Seattle um, earlier this year, um, that money is going to be earmarked for um, some COVID relief, but it's also going to be earmarked for building social housing. Yeah, I heard her mention small housing in the video. You know, maybe we should. You want to listen to that video? You want to hear what she? Yeah, let's play a clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. We'll pull that up and we'll we'll let people hear what she said because I watched it before the show here, and she does refer to I think micro housing is what is what she um, is what she called is that or some some form or term like that. Yeah. So so this is Shama Sawant. She's uh, a member of Socialist Alternative. She's a an elected uh, council person in Seattle. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's uh, let's go ahead and roll the clip. Today's vote to pass an Amazon tax in Seattle is a historic victory for working people. This victory was hard fought and it was hard won by a movement that would have laid down a seamless series of obstacles from the shameful attempt of corporate Democrats in the state legislature to ban. CC, I'm getting some foldback from your. Let me just turn down your volume a sec. The city council to a pandemic and lockdown which prevented signature gathering, to relentless attacks in the corporate media in Seattle and nationally. We are winning because of the determination of workers and socialists to smash all obstacles and to find a path to victory. Congratulations to the grassroots tax Amazon campaign led by the coalition that included my organization, Socialist Alternative, and many progressive organizations and unions. Today's vote comes eight months after working people roundly defeated Amazon in the elections and two years after Amazon and the Chamber of Commerce bullied city council with the majority of the then council 
shamefully repealing the 2018 Amazon tax. Now, Jeff Bezos and his billionaire friends are wishing they could call a do-over and have the modest 2018 tax back because this new tax on Seattle's wealthiest businesses is four times larger and every penny is needed and far more in fact to stop the racist gentrification, sky high rents and homelessness in this city with a massive expansion of publicly owned affordable housing and jobs. This Amazon tax is a housing and jobs bill. It's no accident this comes in the midst of the historic Black Lives Matter rebellion. The legitimacy of the status quo has been utterly smashed by the protest movement, the pandemic, and the deepening crisis of capitalism. In Seattle, Tax Amazon was widely taken up at the Justice for George Floyd protests, where we gathered 20,000 signatures in 20 days. Now the total is over 30,000 signatures. The Amazon tax is perhaps the biggest progressive win in Seattle since socialists and labor unions led the way on the $15 minimum wage, which passed first here and then was won in cities and states around the country. We hope that once again, we can inspire working people and youth nationally and globally in this crucial fight against the billionaire class which is attempting to force working people to pay for the current crisis of capitalism with massive budget cuts. Our rallying cry nationally must be no to austerity. Tax big business, not working people. The Amazon tax shows working people do not need to play defense. We can and should go on the offensive and win big. We must reject all the pathetic attempts of corporate media who after years of attacking the idea of taxing big business and those fighting for it, now desperately want to spin a narrative to discourage working class struggle and empowerment. Let's be real, the Amazon tax had nothing to do with the quote unquote savvy of establishment politicians. It had everything to do with the self-organization of working people. Specifically, it has been the threat of the movement's ballot initiative that has pressured the city establishment to act. Tax Amazon filed the ballot measure after a series of act grassroots democratic action conferences where hundreds of people, indeed by now thousands, discussed and voted. We did not win everything we wanted and I strongly oppose the insertion of a sunset clause, but while I disagree with other council members on watering down the legislation, I want to acknowledge their support and votes for the passage of this Amazon tax. I want to thank Councilmember Muscada for her work. I want to thank Councilmember Morales for her support for the strong Amazon tax proposal we put forward together in solidarity with the movement. We must build on our momentum. The movement to tax Amazon and big business to fund housing and essential services is needed everywhere and we must actively spread it. Here in Seattle, we will need to immediately take this energy toward winning the release of all arrested protesters without charges, to defund Seattle police by at least 50%, to stop the sweeps of our homeless neighbors and to fund tiny house villages, and to win at least a thousand quality affordable homes in the central district for black working families. The struggle for black liberation will also mean campaigning for elected community oversight boards with full powers over the police, including hiring and firing policies and procedures. 
Our movement was clear-eyed about naming the real force pulling the strings, Amazon. Many argue that we should not, quote-unquote, antagonize big business and instead try to broker a deal. But we know that our power comes from working people getting organized, not from any negotiations with the elite. For those watching from outside Seattle, don't let anyone tell you in your fight to tax big business in your city that you're being divisive because class struggle is what gets the goods. The private for-profit housing market has utterly failed working people, not just here and now, but everywhere and always. Because capitalism is completely incapable of meeting the most basic needs of working people. Internationally, the working class needs to take the top 500 corporations into democratic public ownership run by workers in the interests of human need and the environment, not billionaire greed. I have a message for Jeff Bezos and his class. If you attempt again to overturn the Amazon tax, working people will go all out in the thousands to defeat you. And we will not stop there because you see, we are fighting for far more than this tax. We are preparing the ground for a different kind of society. And if you, Jeff Bezos, want to drive that process forward by lashing out against us in our modest demands, then so be it. Because we are coming for you and your rotten system. We are coming to dismantle this deeply oppressive, racist, sexist, violent, utterly bankrupt system of capitalism, this police state. We cannot and will not stop until we overthrow it and replace it with a world based instead on solidarity, genuine democracy, and equality, a socialist world. Thank you. Wow. That I, <laughs> I got to say that that last part, that last statement she made was a little bit disturbing to me. It sounds like we're talking about, you know, a violent overthrow, a revolution. Is that is that what we're what we're looking at here? Is that on the table? There, you got to see uh, uh, a call for violent insurrection on our on our uh, our uh, program. <laughs> I mean, um, what we what we are in the process of building is a within socialist alternative is a a mass uh, revolutionary socialist party. Um, a party that will win over the best elements of the labor movement, um, will, will win over wider and wider layers of working class society. Um, and then and before that, or in, in conjunction with, with building socialist alternatives, both nationally and internationally. We feel that one of the most important um, steps, and this will be such a qualitative advancement um, for, for, the, for the workers' movement, for the socialist movement, will be the formation of a uh, independent uh, workers' party, a, a labor party, a workers' party. That is, that will allow us um, political independence as a class versus relying on the Republican and Democratic parties 
who, as we discussed earlier, uh, operate under the sole interests of the ruling class or the capitalist class. Mm-hmm. So what what we need to see, and what we need to see in this in this period that we've entered in in, in the twenties, is the formation of such a party. If we want to begin to win the type of gains uh, to the level and on the scale that the problems in society are calling for, a massive, a, a major advancement will be the formation of such a party. Some of the foundation stones of such a party will have to be organized labor. Um, organized labor, that means organized, organized labor itself is going to have to go through a process of reform and renewal. There's going to have to be a battle within the ranks uh, of of organized labor to democratize the unions. The mm-hmm. unions have, be, have become uh, these bureaucratic strongholds where the uh, the labor leadership is so far removed from everyday workers, have right. isolated themselves from everyday workers based on the six-figure salaries that they pull, right. based on the golf trips that they take with with management, with the bosses to, to decide what little deal that they're going to cook up the next time collective bargaining comes around. And those are the creeps we have to get rid of. Those are the creeps that we need to run out. I saw it on your, on your website, you're calling for, um, for compensation equivalent to the average worker's salary for, for these members, right? For these. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Your union elected union officials uh, should not earn more than the, than the, salary that uh the of the average skilled worker uh in their trade or in their district or in their area it's the same thing when we run candidates for office um now we don't often enter uh, the electoral field it's not the most favorable field for marxists (laughs) uh but we will strategically run uh members for certain offices uh like like shama who who, uh, we've had the most success with um but shama takes um the average wage of an average worker worker in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for instance, um, say that, uh, say like the city of Chicago, I think council, I think aldermen make like a hundred grand or 110 grand. If we were running, if we were run someone there and we got them in office, they would take, they would probably, I, I would guess the average uh, wage of a worker in Chicago would be around 40 grand. The rest sure. of that money would be the rest of that money would be donated into the into into social movements into th- into movements that are trying to win real gains for working people. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, um, you don't become isolated from your class. You don't become isolated from from other workers. You don't get isolated from the everyday issues that affect mm. working class people. Issues of rent, issue of grocery bills, health bills. Um, right. You feel the pain of your constituents, essentially. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. And you and you know you know Nick. There are to be working class in this country means that every day you are presented with impossible choices. Look at what was going on in the early days of the outbreak of of this uh, of this virus. You had people that were experiencing symptoms, and this is before any of our health institutions or, or God forbid, uh, the, the Trump administration or, or either party to get their act together to even give us the science and give us the facts of what was happening. Um, you have people that are experiencing the symptoms and, they, and, they're, and they're saying they have to make a calculation. Do I go to the doctor 
and accrue thousands, tens of thousands of medical debt if I happen to have this thing. Because no one's told me if if my if my checkup's going to be free, if the healthcare I receive from this is going to put me into thousands of dollars of debt. So you have to make a calculation of do I just cross my fingers and hope that these symptoms will go away in a couple of days and it's just a mild flu or it's all, you know, I'm going to cough or it's all in my head mm-hmm. um, and, and, and potentially spread this virus? Or do I go see the doctor and potentially fall into crippling lifetime debt? Okay. That is an impossible choice. There are choices of, of that ilk, of that manner that are presented to working class people every day, a series of impossible choices. That's the economic and political system we live under. But didn't the the Obamacare the you know the didn't that solve that problem? I thought pretty much if you couldn't afford insurance, the state would provide for it. Nobody and can afford. You- nobody can afford the premiums. I mean, Obama the the ACA to, to um, and, you know and I'll, and I'll I'll disagree I'll disagree with you um, a friendly disagreement uh, to your to your intro at the top of the show. Okay. The ACA is uh, is certainly not an example of socialism. That okay. was a dead giveaway from the Obama administration to the insurance industry. What it did was it put another twenty to thirty million people, uh, forty million the people, pool. on the insurance payrolls. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, they they lauded it as oh look how many more people have insurance while while Obama himself actively torpedoed the public option, which would have been much close closer to a a Medicare for all type system. It wouldn't have been Medicare for all, but it would have been much closer than the, the rubbish that he put up that became the ACA. Um, he, along with insurance people, um, uh, had, a, had a backroom deal where they torpedoed the idea of the public option, which was, you know, that's that's a, a betrayal um, to working people because that was that was squarely on the table. Uh, that could have that could have passed. He had he had both houses in Congress the first two years. He was in office and he didn't deliver a damn thing for working people. So the ACA was a giveaway. That was a boon. That was a boon for insurance companies. They made mm-hmm. money hand over fist because of ACA. Yeah, they wrote that bill. Absolutely. The insurance yeah. companies and and uh, a, a couple of uh, Obama's advisors wrote that. They sat down and wrote that together. Mm-hmm. Um, that but was... Not- now, isn't isn't no isn't no insurance? I know it's a it's a privately run thing, but isn't it in in and of itself kind of a social construct, a socialism socialist type of construct where everybody pitches in, and then people draw from it as they need, right? As just as it, you know the overall idea of insurance. I mean, isn't it very socialist? I think if you take it as an idea and separate it from material reality, you can make that argument. But, but no, if, if we're playing in the world of ideas, we're never going to have our feet on the ground. Yeah. The way insurance works for working people who have their feet on the ground, it's it's it is crippling. It the, the people that got put on the rolls can't afford their premiums, so they don't get they don't get checkups anyway. Again, it's one of these impossible choices. Yeah. The working people are confronted with on a daily basis, and it wears you out and it grinds you down. Yeah. And it is yeah. So it's. Obama, you know, you see so many liberals just like fawning for the for the glory days of Obama. He didn't deliver a damn thing for working people. Mm. And you saw that, Nick. You, you know, you and I have talked about this. Um, how in 2016, what a polarized society uh, you started to see form. And, and it, you still see such a polarized society today. Yeah. And it, it was based on this notion that the 
the, the ruling class institutions, the establishment institutions, both parties, all the institutions that kind of make up the state, lost people lost faith in it it lost all credence people were just like this isn't working for us in a real material way this is not working for us and they saw that there's a polished class there's a polished class in the political class left or right they're people that come from elite institutions they're people that train up for this they talk with a you know they talk with a silver tongue and they just spin lie after after lie after lie. And then you have a punditry. You have a media class. They go to elite institutions, left or right, and they learn how to spin the same lies back and forth with each other as as the people that they went to school with who are holding office, right? Yeah. Um, and the only thing that they you know that they um, um, that they'll disagree on is what's going to, you know, what's going to get you some ratings on the left and what's going to get you some ratings on the right. And, and to do that, they, they punch up a bunch of culture ideas. They punch up a bunch of cultural differences and right. the quote, culture wars, right? The divide that's, people. Yeah. That's meant to do nothing but distract people from, from the fact that they should have, uh, they could have class solidarity that you have examples in history when we've won the gains that have really, uh, um, uh, advanced our society. It's because we had class society, class solidarity. Uh, when we won uh, uh, Social Security, when we won uh, um, uh, Medicare in, in, in the New Deal, when we won all, when, when we put uh, thousands and thousands of workers back to work during the New Deal. And believe mm -hmm. me, the New Deal had its problems, and the New Deal isn't some panacea. Um, yeah. But they were, they were, they were um, steps that were taken to alleviate. Um, uh, the crippling, crippling inequality, and and to uh, well, to get, bring us out of the the Great Depression, and I think that's what some of the things that you guys propose on your website it do also involve that, which which uh, I think might very well come in handy after the end of this Great Depression, which is rebuilding our infrastructure for one, and our transportation system, and 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 there's a lot of it that that needs work. I wish I could uh, pull it up right here, but. Um, Creating living wage union jobs for all the unemployed through public works programs to develop mass transit, renewable energy, infrastructure, healthcare, education, and affordable housing. So great. I don't think anybody could disagree that those things are important for our country or for society as a whole. So um, yeah, that, that just might be the next great thing to pull us out of this next oppression. Which is which is pretty much what we're in. It's, 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 as much as people are trying to deny it, as the news pundits won't even talk about it, nor will the politicians. Everybody knows it's a fact. And the scary thing is, is like you talked about the same thing that happened in in '08 and '09, uh, just happened just now with these big bailouts, right? So of, of all these corporations, these these multinational corporations are getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. And in all these government programs too are getting hundreds of millions. I saw, you know, some, I, I don't have them off the top of my head here, but I was going down the list. One was like 300 million to the endowment for the arts and 300 million for this and 300 million for that. And I'm thinking it's like, there's all these giveaways that both parties said, look, we're going to give to our favorite causes, our favorite companies. And, and, and guess who gets to pay for that? Well, I know, you know, it's the American taxpayer. We're stuck with the bill. So there's this transfer of wealth from the working class to the elite. And that is a big problem. I'll, I will 100% agree with you on that. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when we talk about the New Deal, again, we, you know, as socialists, particularly as Marxists, we don't have rosy glasses when we look back at the New Deal. The New Deal was the New Deal was a set of compromises to, to save capitalism. It wasn't <laughs> uh, it wasn't socialism. It wasn't even on par with with the, the social welfare states of, of, of Europe that workers that workers were able to kind of win based on bottom up pressure after after World War II. Um, we, we, we didn't even get that far with, with the New Deal. The New Deal were, and you know, and, and Roosevelt had to be convinced. He didn't, he wasn't elected on promises of the New Deal in 32. He was, he wanted to try all kinds of other market solutions. Uh, he, he just wanted to sh- reshuffle the, the nonsense that Hoover was attempting before Roosevelt. But it became very, as they slipped farther and farther and they had another meltdown, in, in, you know, in 34 after the, the, the massive uh, breakdown in 29, they they people around his administration began to say we need we need some Keynesian and you you know go back to Keynesian economics uh, yeah. and Keynesian intervention state interventions to or or this thing's going to collapse and what what put what, what what truly put pressure on Roosevelt and his administration to start putting across some of these reforms uh, was the fact that there was a vibrant workers movement. The, the CIO, before they merged with the AFL, the CIO was a militant, radical union that used the strike weapon. The most powerful weapon that working class people have is to withhold your labor. When you withhold your labor, the capitalist uh, equation comes tumbling down. Right. Uh, the capitalist economy, they can't, make, they can't make any more money. They can't profit off of your labor. Well, then that, that's when you really put the scare into the capitalist class. You had that type of consciousness through wide layers of workers and they used the strike weapon and they won massive gains for workers. Um, You had a sizable at the time, a uh, a sizable communist party. You had a sizable socialist party. You had working class consciousness and you had uh, the, the makings uh, for, for revolution, for socialist revolution. They didn't quite have the leadership, um, uh, on the part of the workers, um, but the ruling class looked at the, you had the makeup for, you had the kindling for a, a socialist revolution. And they said, we better start passing some of these things. We better do state intervention. We better tax these, these banks and these corporations. We better regulate. We better reel these fools in or this whole thing could come tumbling down. So again, it wasn't as Roosevelt was, he's li- he's lionized and, you know, he's, he's turned into a saint as well by, uh, <clears throat> by uh, certain, certain progressives, liberals and progressives. But he enacted those reforms because of the pressure from working class organizations, unions and socialists and communist parties, put the fear into the ruling class. And that's how you got those, those New Deal reforms. But we also have to look at the fact that the New Deal excluded and this was no accident, largely excluded black workers. Hmm. You've, got, you've got Jim Crow politicians that made sure of that. All the, all the, all the former slave owners that made up the Democratic Party, that, that uh, made up Roosevelt's uh, you know, uh, Democratic Party. And they made sure that the New Deal cut out black workers because it's classic divide and conquer tactics. You don't want a multiracial working class movement 
mm-hmm. because that's when we start winning real gains. And that's when we start talking about socialism. And that's when we start talking about socialist revolution. Well, tell me this. I mean, a lot of people may or may not know, but a lot of the gains that we have today in terms of the 40-hour work week, the eight-hour day, minimum wage, child labor laws, these all came about as a result of unions. And I myself am currently a member of a union. I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA. And they continue to advocate for safe working conditions on set, um, uh, against sexual harassment or, or uh, putting women in uncompromising, in you know, compromising uh, positions while on set or having to perform, you know, in certain scenes, um, safety in general, but also uh, a decent wage for even just the regular day player. So a lot can be said for, and I've always been kind of a big supporter of unions. Well, my question would be that aren't, aren't unions kind of the compromise between socialism and capitalism? I mean, if you can use the power of the worker to influence the capitalists, why throw out the whole system and start over with a completely socialist thing where you're going to have, you got these big hurdles to overcome. I mean, we're talking about private property. So my father, I don't know, his house would be gone. (laughs) I don't understand how that would work. The one he paid off and worked for all of a sudden, it's just his own by the state. And then you've got the state taking over all these, all these, these companies, you know, why not, why not uh, utilize the power of the union to, to influence, or why not start companies that utilize socialist tenants that do give kind of like a collective and rather than taking over these big fortune 500 companies, why not start them from the grassroots and prove and show that, Hey, look, this system works. Why don't you come work for us? We're going to pay you better. Um, You know, what what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. Those, that's a, a a good set of set of questions in there. So I'll I'll go back to, um, the first part when you were naming some of the some of the gains that the the labor movement has won historically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the end of uh, child labor, um, um, fighting for the forty hour week, and fighting for the 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 forty hour week, which was was actually the when they were the the slogan was the eight hour day, um, was a massive fight, and it spanned uh, decades um, uh, to fight for that, and the capitalists did not want to give that up. It took a long, protracted fight with ups and downs to win it. Hmm. But you had you had a class consciousness then. You had unions willing to fight. You had unions willing to strike. What you had since really the late 70s and 80s are unions that would rather go golfing with the bosses hmm. than, to use, than to educate their rank and file, than to uh, have democratic structures so the rank and file can get involved, so that the rank and file can can make decisions collectively and democratically, and then to use, to wield the strike weapon. That's when you get the goods. That's when things change. Yeah, It was to, to, to end child labor, to, to get the eight hour day, um, to all the different gains uh, were because we had a militant labor movement. They were willing to act, they were willing to use the strike weapon, and they were willing to take on the state head on. What happens when workers strike? Uh, there's internal strike busting from the company. They have all kinds of uh, methods that they use to uh, to sniff it out, 
before it gets formed and put pressure on workers and fire workers if they're trying to organize, or if it's already formed and they're, they're heading towards uh, strike, um, um, what you're going to see eventually if it's really uh, being effective and it's, it's if the state um, and, the, and the ruling class starts to see it as a real threat, that's when you see the police come in. And the police historically have been strike breakers. They're the, mm-hmm. they're the repressive arm of the state. And the state is there to serve the capitalist class. And so if the workers are striking, the police are, the, the police are coming in um, to, to beat workers. And historically, you read any kind of uh, labor literature to shoot workers and, and murder workers. And if the police can't get it done, then you call in the army. If the army can't get it done, you hire mercenaries like the Pinkertons. So that's that's labor history. That's labor history. It's no, it's not rosy. It yeah. was courageous men and women that put their bodies on the line, that used the strike weapon and won serious gains for them and their communities. Um, it wasn't just for the workers. All of that trickled down throughout. Uh, trickle down is a busted term this, these days, but the whole working class community saw the benefits of what right. labor could win. Right. And, and, and that has been eroded. And over, over time, you see the, the AFL is always the more conservative uh, labor federation. And then the CIO and the AFL uh, joined and the CIO essentially abandoned their kind of real class consciousness and their militancy and kind of got uh, co-opted into the AFL type of, mentality and viewpoint and now especially since the late 70s through the 80s until today you just have a really rigidly bureaucratic and and very conservative labor bureaucracy that acts as a massive break on 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 working class consciousness and a break on using the strike weapon to win real gains real victories for working people so Mm -hmm. workers have to have to see it. They have to begin to exercise whatever democratic structures exist within their unions. And, and each, each union has different structures and they have to demand and fight for the democratization of their union. And they need to kick some of these creeps out on their ass uh, because they don't need them. They're a break. They're a break on history. They're a break on the labor movement. And when you see that start to happen, you'll see, um, class consciousness throughout the layers of the working class start to lift up and people's expectations about the type of society that they want to and can live in will start to, will start to rise. And you'll start to see, um, um, you'll start to see things really uh, get cooking in society. And that's, and, you know, going back to Biden, that's the only thing that's going to move Biden. If he were to win this presidency, it's the only thing that's going to hold Trump in check. The Democrats aren't going to hold. They, they didn't hold Trump in check for four years. It was the only thing that kept Trump in check was moments of working class solidarity. Um, uh, one quick example was the government shutdown. Nancy Pelosi didn't didn't negotiate an end to the government shutdown. It was when there was undeclared sickens, essentially sick outs. Uh, from the uh, the airport workers, and when the president of the, the flight attendants union, Sarah Nelson, mentioned the phrase "general strike," that's when the capitalists got on the phone and said, "Listen, Donald, the government is now open for business." That's the power of labor. That's the power of even the threat of strike action. Yeah. So, really, that's what we have to get to. We have to have a rebirth, a renewal of the labor movement, because so many workers don't trust it. 
They don't trust it because these corrupt SOBs that have that have that have just uh, essentially robbed workers blind, robbed the, the the dues coffers, and lived these lavish lifestyles and sold them out over and over. They ruined the they've ruined uh, the the consciousness around uh, unions. And the only way you win that back is you do it the way you did it uh, when the labor movement was born in this country. You do it by striking, whether it's legal or not. The labor movement wasn't a legal sanctioned movement. Those weren't legal sanctioned strike. Those were workers acting together in solidarity to demand what they needed. Sure. You know, you you, uh, made me think of something just now. You brought up Trump and I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on some of his actions that I believe have benefited workers, which have been the renegotiation of the NAFTA and the Pacific Partnership. Uh, these are two what what many people consider to be unfair trade deals. Uh, I think he he also well also a large part of what was going on with China was renegotiating the trade deal with them because a lot of our jobs have been going to China over the years as a result of both Republican and Democrat policies. So it looks to me, just based on what I've been observing, that Trump is pro-worker, that he is not like your average Republican. Um, In fact, a lot of Republicans don't like him for that very reason, because he's not a politician. And I think a lot of what he's been doing has been for, it's been pro-America, but also pro-American worker, especially with renegotiating these trade agreements. What, What do you think about What do you think about that? First of all, Trump has benefited greatly um, from um, the process of globalization that really kicked off um, in uh, starting in the mid seventies and went into hyperdrive in the you know early nineties and through that decade. He's he's benefited from selling his his brand around the world and 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 uh, uh, exploiting the labor of workers in all of his properties and uh, across the world. So uh, Trump is an opportunist. Trump is a right populist. Trump blows with the wind. Trump blows with whatever idea floats from one ear to the next. He is not pro-worker. If some of his, if some of his measures um, have been designed to kind of win some, some working class votes, of course, um, that's, that's, that's a classic populist move. And he has outflanked the Democrats, which tells you how much, how far right the Democrats are. They're a center right party. You know, you see this, there, there's a false dichotomy that there's this, this, this liberal, this wild liberal media. What does liberal even mean? What are their ideas even, even mean? They're, they're, they're useless. They're, they're, they're baseless and weightless. Um, again, it's mainly just around cultural issues. Um, you've got, you've got Trump, outflanking Clinton in 2016 around the TPP. You're absolutely right. You had Trump outflanking Clinton on ending these disastrous imperialist wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Which he's been doing. Because the Democrats are completely hawkish. They're every bit as hawkish as the Republicans. They just executed a different way. And sometimes they have a different country in their sights. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, um, Terribly hawkish. Obama was terribly hawk, uh, was hawkish. He just used a drone war versus a land war. Yeah. Clinton, terribly hawkish uh, as as Obama's secretary, uh, of state. secretary of state. And you've got Biden, who was uh, amidst that whole that whole group of jackals. So, 
Um, So you've got Trump outflanking them and he outflanked them the other day with the the CDC uh, moratorium on on evictions. Right. It was just another populist move where he can he can outflank Biden, whose camp is taking the cynical approach of hiding him, not offering the workers, working class, anything with anything that resembles a program that Biden's even running on. All he's running on is I'm not Trump. It's the same thing Clinton ran on. You're going to vote for this guy. And everyone's like, no one's voting for you. You're one of the most miserable uh, creatures that politics has ever vomited up. So people don't want Biden. And there's a, there's a ton of people that don't want Trump. And we're stuck again. We're stuck in this polarized society where no one believes in either party. Trump has painted himself as an outsider, but he's born with a silver spoon. He, he, he's, he's dined with and donated to every, to, to both sides of the aisle, which you alluded to earlier. Trump is a creature. He's, he is a creature of his class. He's mm-hmm. no friend. To, to the worker, no friend of the worker, but he knows how to do an end around on the Democrats. But, you know, a freaking blind mule could do an end around, pardon the pun, on the Democrats, you know. <laughs> Good one, actually. Um, well, I don't know. I, I would disagree a little bit because I think that it, you, you say that these are populist, okay? I mean, you, you kind of threw that term around a couple of times and these are populist moves, but I mean, they're actual, they're actual pieces of, of, work that have benefited the American worker. Um, and he didn't do this just before the election. These are things that he's been doing throughout his term as president. So this isn't something that he just brought up at the last minute to make himself look good to try and get more votes. I mean, of course, every politician is constantly politicking and trying to get votes. But I think the real ones, the people who want to serve the country are out there doing what they believe is best for their constituency and best for America as a whole, not just one party or the other. And, and I think that's why he, he pissed off a lot of people on the right and the left because he's not playing the traditional politics game. You know, he's, he went in there as a businessman, as you pointed out, he's someone who came up as a capitalist benefited from the capitalist system. Um, We could argue that he took advantage of workers. I don't know. I don't know what he pays his people or what all these people that he hired to build his buildings and all this, all this work that he generated as a result of him creating this empire. So you could argue that he created jobs. Uh, were they good paying jobs? I don't know. Were people complaining? I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't heard one way or the other that people were, you know, getting wealthy working for Trump, but also I haven't heard that people were going broke working for Trump. But I, I will say this, that, for all the flack that he takes for being, you know, racist and homophobic and xenophobic, it just hasn't played out. You know, you look at the guy's history. I had another guest on who talked about what he did over in Mar-a-Lago, and he fought with the local community to open up that club to people of all walks of life, whether they be black or Hispanic or Jewish or whatever. They The, the white, the wasps in that community did not want those people um, in Mar-a-Lago or on that property. He fought with Palm Beach to open up that to a lot of people. And a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that until my guest pointed it out, but he actually lived in that community and witnessed that personally. So I think there's a lot of unfair attacks against him on that. And I think that along goes what goes along with that are these assumptions that he's just some kind of greedy capitalist. And I, I'm going to Partially agree with you on that because I think greed is what motivates 
these capitalists and these people at this level, at that level. And I believe that's a, an, a, a just, it's a part of human nature. It's something that you can't legislate away. It's something that you can't, um, that you, 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 you can't bring in a different party and just hope that, or a different system such as socialism and hope that human greed and the desire to want more is just going to go away. And even if you were to give everybody an equal share of everything, you've still got that innate nature for people to want more, to want to, to get more, to want to succeed more and so on and so forth. So uh, is there any remedy for that? Or is socialism just another temporary fix along the way of human evolution? Well, I don't know about human evolution. I think it's a stay. Uh, uh, it'll be the next stage in history. I think mm. um, when you, you look at the course of history, the, the, the capitalism is a, it's a stage in history. It, it was born out of feudalism, right? Feudalism was a class society as well. Um, it had a different mode of production. When that evolved or trans, you know, transformed into, uh, you know, it went through mercantilism and then it became kind of more recognizable what, of how we see, how we understand capitalism. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a, say again? When the bankers came in. Oh, they didn't come. Yeah, they didn't come in long after uh, the markets. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's who I think is really to point the finger at. If you're going to point the finger at anybody, it's the bankers, man. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't. Uh, yeah, they're they're um, kind. Of, yeah, the bankers and, and financialization and speculation. I mean, that's that was just in the DNA of of capitalism as it as as it's uh, as it matured, and now it's and you know. Now it's it's run its course. History needs to go to the next stage of history. Hmm. Uh, with socialist alternative beliefs, is that has to be a socialist stage in history? It's the next stage um, that uh, that uh, that humanity needs to progress to, and it's um, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It was a it was incredibly it was an incredibly productive system no one's no one's going to argue that you went from a system of um where scarcity was a reality scarcity um of of the goods and products that humans needed to uh to live without without the fear of of want and deprivation right so the 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 the, the really great productivity um, um of the capitalist mode of production solve that scarcity problem. Um, what it couldn't solve was the internal contradictions within capitalism itself, going through these boom and bust cycles, the constant crisis of overproduction, the crisis of, of lack of demand, which, which we're seeing now as we're slipping in the early days of, of depression, overproduction and a massive demand crisis, right? Uh, because everything's been sucked up into these uh, into a, a financial capital versus productive capital. Um, and they're all just sitting on this great wealth and they're trading these financial products and it's terribly volatile and no one's investing into, into productive capital. There, are, there aren't enough jobs and there aren't enough money in people's pockets to buy, the, to, to buy the products that they're making in the first place. So there's these inherent contradictions that capitalism hasn't solved through the course of that stage of history. Um, you go back and you see, you can clearly see the boom and bust cycle. And it follows these, these economic laws that you can, that you can find, that you can see. Um, and it also has, so it solved 
scarcity, but it, it, it has not solved inequality. It cannot solve inequality. Um, the middle class, the great middle class that people still like to talk of, was more of an anomaly within the stage of capitalist history than it was a, a rule, much more the exception, the rule of the middle class arose during the, 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 the really big growth years of just post-World War II till about the mid-70s when it all came to a grinding halt. And during the boom, you did see uh, the formation of kind of a, a slightly more robust middle class. That's gone. All the gains of that era have been whittled away. All the gains of the New Deal have been taken back and whittled away. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, th I think it's it's a stage of history and it's outlived its usefulness. We now have we now have the productivity. We now have the technique, the technology, to 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 so to where we're not susceptible to 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 um, to um, to shortages, to, to, to want and need anymore. Um, and so what we need now is to move to that next stage of society where the economy is planned, it's democratically run, we take the chaos of the market out of it, and it's people democratically deciding what to produce, how to distribute it, and how to undo and safeguard against the terrible, terrible damage, ecological damage that has been done Capitalism will not solve the, 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 the um, ecological crisis. It's going to continue to exacerbate it. There are no market solutions for this, for this climate crisis. Um, only a socialist transformation society internationally can even begin to solve um, the crisis of inequality and the crisis, uh, the ecological uh, crisis. Hmm. Capitalism cannot and will not solve those two uh, fundamental crises. Well, not not to go too much further into it because we are reaching the the end of our our show here. But you know, I think things like cap and trade have been put in place that have seen some success in terms of mitigating the effects of pollution, where uh, you know, companies are paid to not pollute by companies who choose to pollute. So it's not a perfect system. You're right. Yeah, what keeps happening? It's pollution, right? So, <laughs> so uh, I don't, I don't know how, in particular, socialism might be a solution to that because we're still going to have to produce goods, um, uh, other than by the state taking over a company that produces pollution and shutting it down, which I, I would only imagine is is kind of how it would work. Uh, in which case you'd have a lot of people out of work. So what would you do with those people? So there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of questions I think that are still unanswered in terms of the intricacies of the of the implementation of socialism in terms of its, of our transfer over from capitalism into a socialist society. It's, it's, it seems to me that it would be a very tumultuous transition. Any, any, particular thoughts or any statements you'd like to make before we close? Sure. And I, it's, 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 um, it's fitting that we, we close on this topic is, you know, um, being here in Los Angeles, we haven't, you know, we haven't seen the sun for uh, days because of the ash that's hanging in, uh, hanging in our atmosphere uh, from the catastrophic forest fires that are, that are raging up and down the West coast. Um, 
this is the, the intensity and it's a longer fire season. The intensity of the fires are greater. That's undeniably about um, climate change um, and the drought um, and uh, that has uh, stricken um, so much of the forest land uh, throughout, particularly uh, California. It's undeniable that, that, that there's a connection to the length of the fire season and the intensity of the fires connected to this climate crisis. You also have in California, um, up uh, by the Bay Area, the the the, um, the utility, um, um, PG and E, PG and E, right? And you've seen how many fires have been started because their equipment, their stakeholders who suck up profit and give themselves a tasty bonus at the end of each fiscal year, instead of putting that money back into their infrastructure, mm. their infrastructure is generations behind. Yeah, it's old. It sparks off and it starts a fire, right? And so, what do they do? They 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 pay off uh, a certain amount of families in civil court whose houses burned or cattle burned, uh, or or who were displaced. And then now they're I think are, are, I think now they're they're talking about bankruptcy so that their shareholders can can take what they can and go you'll screw off somewhere. And the rest of us are left with the the, the devastating effects of a terribly incompetent and irresponsible. Um, utility. So take that utility into public ownership. The workers know how to do the work. The workers know how to maintain those lines. The mm. workers know how to uh, 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 modernize the equipment. They're the ones who built it. They know how to take care of it. We know how to solve problems. We're not, we're not given the opportunity because hmm. we don't have the, we don't make the democratic decisions. We just go to work, work for a boss, collect their paycheck, Go home. Meanwhile, they they destroy our environment. So take those utility companies and the fossil fuel industry into public ownership. Let it be run democratically by the workers, the workers who built it, who know how to run it, who know how to fix it, who know how to modernize it, who will have ideas on how to advance it. Um, Let them run it. You capture all that capital. All that capital is put into shutting down the fossil fuel industry. Uh, um, uh, or phasing out the fossil fuel industry, all that capital is sunk into a a massive campaign of of greening uh, the energy system and the utility system, and the rest of that capital is is used to pay uh, the the union workers that are going to transform it a living wage, and what's left over is going to be poured into more infrastructure projects that are going to put more people to work with living wage union jobs. These are practical solutions. uh, And these are uh, working class solutions. These are socialist solutions. And it's the only way we're going to solve this climate crisis. And it's at this point, it's in tandem with the, with the crisis of inequality, the crisis of poverty. They're, they're, they're uh, inextricably bound. And that's why, uh, in socialist alternative, um, we not only fight for the, the 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 day-to-day demands that are right in front of us, like tax Amazon, tax Disney, but we we also know that we need a fundamental transformation of society, where it's it's uh, state-owned, democratically worker-run, it's planned, and uh, it meets human needs and the needs of the environment, not the needs of shareholders. Well, that sounds that sounds good. I mean, that perhaps would be a good place to start in terms of this transition that we're talking about, you know, starting with public utilities and energy and the environment. 
those two those things are definitely intertwined so perhaps like i said that would be a good place to start and it seems as if this is also a good place to end so <laughs> um any uh, how can people find out more about your organization sure so you can go to um um you, you can find us across all the different platforms on on so on social media uh, if you look up socialist alternative um you can um uh find us at uh, socialistalternative.org is our, our website you can see you can kind of see our, our program kind of our you know kind of um kind of all the different things that we kind of call for uh you can read any number of articles that address uh all the different things that are happening in society um, as well as uh, uh, articles from our international organization uh, that uh, connect to uh, working class struggles across the globe. Um, so, yeah, you can check us out, socialistalternative.org. Find us on all the different social media platforms and, uh, yeah, reach out to us if you're, if you're interested in uh, socialism, you're interested in uh, um, fighting to, to transform this society. Sounds good. Well, um, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to help me and our guests understand socialism a little bit better and how you think it could benefit our country and our society as a whole. And it's been really interesting and really fun talking with you. So um, thank you so much, CC, and I hope you'll come back sometime. It was my pleasure, Nick. It was good to see you. And uh, yeah, having back anytime. I'd love, I'd love to do it. Great. Love it, brother. Okay. Take care and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Nick. Bye-bye. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that was a pretty interesting conversation. And I felt like we still have a lot of questions unanswered at the end of it, but at least we got the conversation started and hopefully you got a chance to get some insight into someone that, or and into an ideal that you might not necessarily agree with. Again, that's what this podcast is all about, is providing a platform for people to discuss open ideas in an open forum. Um, and that's, again, that's really why I, I started this whole thing. So I hope you enjoyed what we shared here today. Um, that, unfortunately, is the end of our show. But I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And once again, I would like to thank our guest, CC, for taking the time to give us that more in-depth look at socialism. And, of course, for answering some of the difficult questions that I posed to him. He did actually quite well. Um, you can find more about the Socialist Alternative Group at socialistalternative.org. You can also find their link uh, a link rather to their website in the description section of this episode. So thank you again for tuning in to the free America podcast. Uh, once again, I, I, you know, if you enjoy what we're doing over here, please head on over to patreon.com slash free America podcast and show us a little love. You can also find this episode and others wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple podcast, and while you're there, please leave a kind word and a high rating if you like our show. Also, make sure to pop by freeamericapodcast.com and subscribe to our site, where you'll find this episode and others, along with special reports from out in the field, 
as well as news articles covering issues not discussed in the mainstream media. So for now, and the foreseeable future, I'm Nick Yaya. And remember, this November, you don't have to vote Republican. But for the love of God, don't vote Democrat. <laughs> Good night, everybody.